This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. Almost Heretical 2020, first episode in 2020. Welcome to the new year. This is now entering our third year of doing the show. It was in December of 2017 that we first turned the mics on and started recording. We released our first episodes in January 2018, and here we are now, January 2020, kicking off the third year of the show. The show uh, has been, it's been a lot of fun and some hard work, I think, doing the show. I've personally... I think grown a lot. I really needed this show when we first started doing it to process through a lot of the things I had been thinking, a lot of the spiritual changes I guess I was going through, a lot of the theological changes I was I was going through. And so this show has been that place for me. And what's cool is reading all of your emails over the last couple of years to see how this show has been that for you and how we've all been able to kind of go on this journey together of reimagining what our faith can look like, reimagining what that word even means and and kind of evolving along this way and hopefully healing a little bit in the process. So super thankful and grateful for you and especially thankful for all of you who help make this show possible with your Patreon support. Yeah, here's to year three. So we took a few weeks off with holidays. We both got sick with the flu and now we'll see how the next few weeks go because at the point of this podcast actually going out into your headphones, uh, I will likely have just had a baby. And so we will be figuring out how to, uh, it's the second time we've done this because Nate had a baby uh, last year, Um, but we'll be figuring out how much we can record and get done uh, in the stupor of of baby world. But here's here's to uh, year three of the podcast. All right, so to kick off this new year, we thought we would kind of reset a little bit of what we've been talking about for the last six or seven episodes. We're talking about how God relates to humans in the Bible and how the biblical writers imagined this happening, right? So oftentimes we use words like atonement or blood sacrifice to talk about what needs to happen in order for us humans to be able to be in contact with God. So we've been we've been diving into some pretty like nitty-gritty details that you might have missed just reading the stories in the Old Testament to try to show that there's something different going on here. It's not humans are bad, God is good and God wants to punish us, but then Jesus stepped in the way and took all of God's punishment for us and now we can worship the God that didn't kill us for <laughs> the rest of time. So there's something more going on here. And so we've we've done a little bit of that over the, the history of this show in looking at kind of arguments against penal substitutionary atonement, which is what that view is sort of called. But now we're we're diving in a little bit deeper and, and Tim is kind of shining some light on aspects of the story that get pretty weird, to be perfectly honest. And in some ways, I have trouble fully wrapping my head around. But But what it seems like, and this is sort of the picture we've come back to, what it seems like is that this is a lot more like you are about to go into a nuclear reactor. Let's say you're going on a tour, 
Okay, imagine you're about to go on a tour of a nuclear reactor. So you walk into this first room before you go into where the nuclear reactor is, and they give you some instructions, right? So the person that's going to lead you on this tour is dressed up in this weird suit, and you're like, okay, it's looking like we're about to put on that type of a suit as well. And so you do, you jump into this suit and zip it all up and get all this hazmat gear on, and they give you these instructions that you're going to you're going to need as you walk into this next room. And so they tell you, you know, you don't go here, you don't do this, you don't touch this, you don't go beyond this line, you don't do all this stuff because we're about to go into a pretty dangerous and kind of foreign environment. And so then the big doors open up and you you walk in into the nuclear reactor. And with these instructions, if you follow these instructions, if you wear this suit, if you follow these processes, then you will be safe you will have life, you will live. And so when we see some of these uh, words, these lines of like, you will live, you will, you will not die, <laughs> we need to take these a little bit more literally in the Old Testament. So this picture um, is of God as the nuclear reactor and we humans are going to encounter, going, to in, going into the presence of this being. And so there's, there's rules, there's laws, there's, there's practices that you need to follow processes that need to happen in order for you to go into the presence of this being. So that's a little bit more like what's going on. And that's what we've been diving into for the past six or seven episodes and where we're going to continue today. All right, Tim, where are we headed now on this journey into God relating to humans? Uh, To be totally honest, I don't know exactly where this episode is going to take us. There's so many interesting places. I think there's a good summary. Some of what we've been doing is you know, there's always this back and forth between Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and then New Testament, right? And so some of what we've been doing is like looking at Leviticus or the books of the Torah and seeing like, okay, what was this whole system? What was the tabernacle about? What were the laws about? And the nuclear reactor metaphor, which you just explicated, is one of the ways we've we've tried to understand this. And then we go into the New Testament uh, to do two things. One... Um, is you can read the New Testament just like you can read other texts uh, written after the Hebrew Bible, inspired by the Hebrew Bible. So some of the apocryphal texts or uh, Second Temple literature. And you can see if the, the way I'm explaining some of these things, if that seems to fit the data of these other texts, right? Do the, other, do the writers of these later texts, are they thinking in those terms too? So for instance... One of the basic premises uh, that I've laid out is that the the scientific belief of the biblical authors, especially those who wrote the Torah, was simply that that God was was physically chemically dangerous to to humans. Right. Um, so so you can look and go, okay, well, were other writers of other texts did they hold that same uh, assumption? Did did they presume that same idea? And the answer is yes. Yes, they did. And you see that in the New Testament. Then the other thing we can do, though, is to go, okay, now that we understand that, it's been affirmed in multiple places. We understand that that was a predominant view. Let's take that view to the New Testament and reread it, like reread it with this as a new lens, right? So so one is sort of reading forward and the other is reading backward. Um, one's to affirm the new theory and then one is to apply the new theory. So we'll do sort of a, some of that mixed up at different times and maybe uh, for a couple episodes we'll be bouncing back and forth between 
what was this tabernacle system all about? What was killing the animals all about? Because there's still lots of the details we haven't gotten into there. And then some of we'll be looking at the New Testament going, what were the Gospels saying Jesus was doing? Why do the Gospels talk about Jesus's body and Jesus's blood so much? Why do we even have sacraments that are based on Jesus's body and Jesus's blood? Uh, stuff like that. Um, and it may be a mixture sort of back and forth. And I'll let you, Nate, kind of be the guide of where you've got some questions and gray area, uh, and all that. So that's sort of a general setup, but let's go back to where we landed the, the very last episode we did, which was about blood. And we landed by saying the predominant view that you and I have both grown up on was essentially, I would think it's safe to say the view that most Christians in the West grew up with and potentially a view that even if you're not a Christian, you grew up thinking that's what Christians in the West, you know, that's what they think. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue. Yep. So that the view is essentially in the, in the old system, in the Jewish sacrificial system, at the tabernacle, at the temple, animals had to be killed because something had to die. So for, for us to avoid, or for humans, for Israel to avoid receiving God's punishment of death, then the animals had to die in their place. And then we read the New Testament and we see that the New Testament is constantly making references to the sacrificial system, to Jesus as an offering, to blood, to animal sacrifice, like to that system. And therefore it's been impossible for many of us to even imagine that that isn't the primary meaning of what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus had to die so we don't die. Right. So Jesus is, and it even says right somewhere that like Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And so you basically have these animals in the Old Testament, and now we're doing something new in the New Testament with Jesus as that lamb. And so we don't need those lambs anymore. We don't need to actually kill an animal anymore. This is the one sacrifice for all time. And that seems to be where a lot of, especially Reformed people, would go and say that's why there was such a rub with the Jewish people of the day because they didn't want to accept that there was this one sacrifice, you know, for all, we need to keep the sacrificial system, we need to keep these things in place. Yeah, that seems to be, I think that's a pretty good summary of of how I think we we thought about things in kind of the traditional view. Right, and I think because, and we've gotten some listener questions about this, because the New Testament talks about sin, actually there are a couple different words that, that are translated as sin, which probably mean a, f a few different things, but it talks about sin a lot, right? Like sort of all over the place. Yeah. It does talk about forgiveness a lot. And I think what we've done is allowed that to actually let us uh, sort of re-read in, in, in an unhelpful way the Levitical system to suggest that the Levitical system was all about sin, even though the Levitical system talks very little about sin, and when it does, as we've mentioned multiple times, uh, most sins, as we would refer to them, were not able to be dealt with by animal blood or by any of the substances or processes uh, or rituals. Uh, it simply had to be removed. And so there's something happening in the, in the New Testament that is using the science, the underlying assumptions, and the solutions that were provided or uh, the solutions that were believed to, to exist in this whole Levitical system. And it is using those to explain what Jesus was doing. 
and sin is a part of it and it's an it is an important part of it but it's actually far more complicated than i think we've we've made it so part of why the penal substitutionary view of jesus died in our place so that we don't die part of why that has been popular is i simply think the complexity of what's actually happening in the new testament is is too much for most of us to to grasp and so it's it's tempting and it's uh it's appealing to to seek one sort of simplified view that can make sense of all of the data uh, the problem is it actually doesn't make sense of the of the entire Torah, of the Levitical system. And if we go back and un- re-understand the Levitical system and the science underlying it, then actually the case I'm, I'm making is that we actually can make sense of all this complex data. It's just going to take doing some homework. You just said that, you know, it's, a, it's more complex. You can't just have like one way to look at, let's say, atonement or what Jesus did, right? So I've heard this from some reformed uh, people that have said, you know, we can't just have one view, penal substitution, that view of atonement, that's one of my kind of tools in the in the arsenal, right? Like they, they love to say that it's not the only way they look at this, but it is a piece of this. And I'm just curious what you would say to that, first of all. And then also, do you think it can be, do you think the penal substitutionary atonement can be part of the the way to look at it. I think even N.T. Wright talks about that. Like he doesn't rule it out completely. He just says it's one of the ways, but it's not the primary way. And um, and it's not maybe one of the more helpful ways to look at the atonement. I guess I'm just curious, is it important to keep it as one of the ways to look at atonement or is it something we should just ditch altogether? Yeah, s- simple answer for me. And you know, I, I could be wrong, but simple answer for me is it's, it simply isn't there. Penal substitutionary atonement does not exist in either the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament. That's that's my uh, belief. And so I don't hold it as one of a litany of views. So part of what I've suggested is atonement simply doesn't mean that. Atonement does not mean a penal substitution. And actually atonement, so, so <clears throat> let's cover some ground we've already covered and then try to take it forward a step. Uh, Jacob Milgram, famous... Uh, Hebrew scholar, mostly on Leviticus uh, and and the Levitical system and how all these things worked, uh, essentially set the bar for the last couple decades in uh, in biblical scholarship and established what has to be uh, at least largely true, even though I'm critiquing it as well, in that what atonement was, in, in Milgram's view, was purification, purgation. So on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is, Yom means day. Kippur is the word that we translate atonement, whether or not that word is helpful or not. So the day of atonement, what happened in in Milgram's view was similar to what we see happening in multiple other ancient Near Eastern cultures was the temple was re-cleansed to allow it to maintain its, its, function to keep in operation for another year. And that is what essentially atonement is. So so Milgram actually sees blood as the the cleanser par excellence. It's blood is the quintessential cleansing substance. So water can cleanse impurity. <clears throat> These various chemicals, basically uh, spices mixed in with oil, 
<clears throat> blood mixed in with some other substances like hyssop and things. Um, these chemicals have have the capacity to cleanse. So when a leper is diseased with a skin disease or a house is diseased with a skin disease of a wall of a house, as, as the language of Leviticus says it, uh, substances can be applied to the house or the leper to cleanse the, the disease thing. None of that has anything to do with punishment, substitution, any of that. It's about, it's about defilement and cleansing. So what I've uh, seen and wanted to add to, uh, to Milgram's view, I think cleansing is absolutely an essential uh, theme of all that is happening in the Levitical system. If you remember... We said there are essentially two categories that each have two binary opposites. So there is clean or unclean, and there is holy or common. And I think there are two themes of processes, kinds of actions that relate to those two categories. So one is cleansing. To make something move from unclean to clean, from defiled to pure, it has to be purified or cleansed. And blood at times is used in a way that, that cleanses things. So in Milgram's view, blood is, in, is almost always cleansing. And what atonement is, is essentially almost every time is going to be the process of purifying something. So the reason animals were killed was to gain access to this substance that was especially, it was like an especially potent detergent, Okay. I know that sounds strange, but that's that's actually pretty well established in, in biblical scholarship. Uh, but I think what's been less uh, noticed, but is is actually quite prevalent in the texts themselves, is that the way that holiness was attained, or the way that something could move from being common to holy, was the process of insulation, of adding layers, layers that were compatible with contact with a holy thing that would essentially insulate the unholy thing from, from contact. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> and so when you see it, the, the easiest example to see that is the priests wearing multiple layers of clothes. So, okay, so that was for the holy and the common. Mm -hmm. Moving from unclean to clean, you needed to be cleansed. Moving from common to holy, you need some... Being a common thing, you can't make yourself holy, but you can maybe shield yourself so that you can go into the presence of holy? Yes. And so it does actually, it raises the question of 
for instance, when the priests don these clothes, and the further in the priest goes, the closer to the Holy of Holies, the more clothes that priest has to wear. Right. And then once they put on the clothes, so, so to recall the basic practice for the priests, they must take a bath to cleanse themselves first. Then they put on special undergarments. Then they put on the priestly robe, the whole attire. Remember, there's a part on the headband that says holy to the Lord. There's basically all this special parts of it. And there's literally a holy fabric, this scarlet fabric. And the further in the priest goes, the more of that holy fabric they get. Uh, if you remember, the there's this law that every man in Israel is to have a tassel with one scarlet thread on their tassel. Right, I remember that. Yeah, a little bit. Something I didn't see, but Milgram has successfully pointed out, is each, essentially each male, which then in the view, everyone in their household, gets one little thread of, of a holy substance. Then the priests get a whole sash of this thing. And the high priest gets an entire garment that is sort of laced with this uh, holy fabric. So literally just in the fabrics used, there is this gradations of, of how much holiness, uh, how much holy substance is required. And these things like clothing, fabric, is, it's easy for me to now say is, an, is insulating, right? Uh, but it raises a question of does the priest actually become holy mm. Right? Should we be talking about this in terms of a transformation? Or is or as like when we when I put on clothes, I don't become something different, right? In the way we typically think about it. We would say, I you know, I have now insulated myself from from cold weather by putting on an extra jacket or whatever. I haven't made myself a warm substance, right? <laughs> I have True. warmed myself. I ha so in in the same way you could say, okay, a priest has sanctified, that just means holied, a priest has holied himself by adding layers, but has the priest actually become any extra holy or not? It raised the question of like, should we be talking about sanctification in terms of a transformation that happens or something else akin to wearing clothes? But uh, right. let me backtrack even more. One piece that I have seen most scholars have not noticed is we talked about the the role of like transmission and and containment, sort of like quarantine, right? Yep. And what many scholars have have paid good attention to is that so much of the Levitical law is about containing defilement so that it doesn't spread and end up virally defiling the entire nation of Israel. Okay. So a leper is forced to go sleep outside the camp until he is cleansed. Okay. Stuff like that. If you're the leper can come back when he's cleansed to some extent, but can't go inside of his tent until he's fully cleansed. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. There are all these layers of borders and protocols to protect against defilement spreading. What I think many scholars have missed is that the same concern is given to the spread of holiness. Not because holiness is bad, but holiness is just as dangerous. The danger is when a when an unclean, common thing comes into contact with the holy thing. Hmm. And holiness is spreadable. Holiness is transmittable, just like defilement is. That's actually why the priests are, are mandated 
that once they go through this process and they put on all the clothes, they put on, oh, I think I, I cut this off. So they take a bath, they put on the clothes, then they put oil on themselves, and then they put blood on themselves. There's multiple layers of insulation, okay? And once they do that, you get all these strict commands. You can't leave the tabernacle or you will die. It says that in multiple places. You have been now prepared in a state of holiness. And if you go out into the normal common world and go see your family... It seems like the world would die. It seems like your family would die. That doesn't make sense to me, it, but... I think the insinuation is that both would happen. But the, the laws are being given to the priests. Remember, most of these instructions are being told to the priests. So basically, death is going to happen if you do this thing. Not in this, right. We don't know. And, and we don't know who else is going down. But the other, the other idea, too, is even if there's no one around, the ground outside, the world outside is not holy. The world outside the tabernacle is the world. It's common. And so even if no one's standing there for, for the uh, Alka-Seltzer dropping into the soda bottle chemical reaction to occur. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. <laughs> right. The priest. Oh, what a relief it is. <laughs> once the priest is fully in this holy status, the priest is not allowed, not able to just jump back into the common world safely. So what they have to do and this is why these details are put in the text, is remove those clothes and take a bath on the way out. So for instance, there are parts where like the priest's job is to remove the ashes at times from the, from the altar, right? You get this big ash buildup right. and they have to take the ash outside the camp. And there's literally protocols given for the reason they are told to wear underwear. <laughs> the reason why we read a text in the Bible demanding priests wear underwear, right? Like, why do we get that detail? The reason is, is because the priests have to have to remove their clothes and bathe on the way in and on the way out. And if they don't have underwear on, they're going to expose themselves, which is considered a form of defilement. And so this entire, this transmission uh, change process has to be accounted for. So the priests have to be able to undo their holiness before they can go back out into normal life. So let me see if you remember part of a story, Nate. We've talked about the Nadab and Abihu story uh, several times. Um, do you remember the, some of the other strange parts of that story? For instance, you remember, so Aaron's in the tabernacle. This is the, the launch. Uh, the story is the launch of the tabernacle system. And you have Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's two sons all inaugurating the nuclear reactor, right? And then something happens and Aaron's two sons die. And then what we read is Moses giving Aaron basically this, this set of restrictions, which includes you're not allowed to go to the funeral and you're not allowed to leave this tent and you're not allowed to do what would have been the typical mourning, grieving practices of ripping your clothes and if you do any of those things, you're going to die. <laughs> Wait, why? That, yeah, that seems so weird. Why? So the, what does that have to do with being holy? The reason... Because they can't go around death? They can't go... Exactly. So there are all sorts of restrictions around the treatment of dead bodies. Uh, and the, the more holy one is, the more strict one has to be a, around those bodies. So for instance, uh, most people... It said, you know, if you touch a dead body for some reason, you have to bury your loved one. 
um, you're not wrong for doing that. You, someone needs to bury the person, right? Uh, you're just told you need to be cleansed. Um, for the priests, they're not to go participate in burials unless it's their immediate family. It's like you're the priests are the Levites are especially holy, so they are said you know don't you can't even come close to a dead body unless it's one of your your immediate family members and then there's sort of like this this exception. The high priests aren't even allowed to bury their immediate loved ones. There's again there's this gradation. The more holy one is, the more distance they require from defiling things. Okay. And while so the whole point is. Let me just read the text. This is Leviticus 10. Okay, so Nadab and Abihu die. Moses calls in their cousins to carry them off, get their bodies away from the tabernacle because something very dangerous just happened. Dead bodies just became present in, in the holy place, right? Dead bodies are defiling. This is the space that's supposed to be kept from defilement. So something very dangerous just occurred and needs to be dealt with immediately. So like the hazmat team has been called in to deal with this contamination. Okay. I picture that siren going off. Exactly. They carry them off. And then in verse six, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes or you will die. And the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. Okay, so pause right here. This is one of the few texts that gives us the scientific explanation for the strange things that we are reading. Okay, twice they're told you can't leave or mourn the way that you usually would and you can't go attend the funeral because you will die. Two times, that's repeated. And then... It's explained why you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. This is the holy oil that's applied to the priests as another layer of insulation that makes them holy. It's explaining to us that they are now in a state that requires very careful precaution. So we usually think of like the priests get to go into the the Holy of Holies and it's like, yay, they have this great job. But what the texts are doing is constantly balancing Yay, they have this great job. It's an honor, it's an honored position to be able to go close to God. And they are the unluckiest schmucks in all of Israel because they have the most dangerous job possible. They are taking on far more risk than anybody else in Israel by being those who come close. And not just by being those that come close, becoming holy itself is dangerous. Because then if anything happens to defile them, or if they come into any contact with something defiled, they could die. And so the explanation, the same science that we've looked at of like why the blood, why these chemicals, why killing animals, is part of this same science explaining this chapter that has befuddled so many people. These restrictions are given... Because the scientific belief is once you're holy, once Aaron is holy, you have to be really, you have to be really careful about that. So for instance, there are even rules about once food becomes holy. So remember when, when animals were given or grains, bread or, or raw grain 
was given to God as a, as a sort of gift, an offering at the, the tabernacle. Most of it also doubled as being given to the priests for food. Okay. So the, the priests would essentially barbecue it on the altar. Some would be burned up, like the fat portions would be burned up as, as God's portion. And then the priests would eat most of the rest of it. Okay. Sometimes in a, one of the offerings, the people who brought the offering would get to eat the food themselves. This is the fellowship or sort of like celebration offering. But essentially, the food, once it touched the holy altar, which is the place where blood went, became holy and only the priests were allowed to eat it. But the same science explains why there are multiple times where it said you have to eat it in the tabernacle. If you take the food out of the tabernacle, you will die. The food has just become holy. And so we have a whole set of protocols around where the food can go and who can touch the food. Like, why do we have, you know, why do we have these rules? Holy to us means like a place of high honor, right? It's like, you know, uh, there are even like preachers who will say the word holy in like a deeper voice than when they say other words, right? It's like, it's like uh, this thing that is... It's all about, typically, in Protestant worlds I've been in, this is what the term glory typically is referred to. To give glory to God typically means, like, you're going to pay utter respect, yeah. right? Like, it's this, um, to treat it, to treat the place, to treat the ideas, to treat the name of God, to treat God as utterly sacred, special, reverent, powerful, that kind of thing. And that is present in the biblical text. Like there is, this was an honor shame culture in which you had to give honor to those that were due honor. But that's not what primarily holiness was about. Holiness was primarily a chemical state. We've said that before. It's just so strange. It's worth, it's worth repeating. These restrictions, you know, in again, in Leviticus 10, eat the food in the sanctuary. That rule is not about honor. That rule is about following the protocols. And if you don't, again and again, the stories show that bad things happen, like death. We see it all over. You will die. You will die. If you don't do this, you will die. If you do this, you will die. A second thing that I haven't heard many scholars talk about. Okay, after you do that, then I'm going to make you talk about a New Testament verse. I'm going to force you to. Okay, cool. It's that there's a direct correlation between the need to purify unclean things and cleansing and cleansing substances like water and simultaneously the need to make common things holy by means of insulation and insulating substances. So you have two movements. One is from impure to pure, which requires essentially detergents, and the other is from common to holy, which appears to be primarily accomplished by means of insulation. And the substances that are used to accomplish these two different changes are typically kept in their own category. So water is a cleanser. It is the sort of quintessential cleanser. That's why you have baptism and hand-washing and bathing. Oil is sort of the quintessential 
insulating material. That's why the whole idea of anointing someone with oil, anointing an object with oil, covering it with oil in order to make it holy. Oil is, is a kind of quintessential insulation, similar to clothing. Blood, fascinatingly and importantly, is one of the few substances that appears to be able to do both things. So at times, blood is used as a cleanser. For instance, blood is mixed with water to cleanse certain people from certain kinds of impurity, like skin disease. But blood is also one of the most valuable materials able to accomplish insulation, to make things holy, by again, just like oil, covering an object in the material. And as we've touched on, this has to do with the special properties of blood, that blood is a part human, part divine property. It's an exceedingly valuable chemical. And there's a second important thing that is that some scholars have picked up, but many, many Levitical scholars and, and good Levitical scholars, I think, have missed. What everybody knows and sees is that there is a huge concern for the spread, the viral, dangerous spread of defilement. One situation, one woman who becomes defiled from giving birth to a child, or one person who uh, comes down with a skin disease and becomes defiled, has the capacity to make the entire camp unclean and therefore potentially blow up the entire system. And so you have these strict concerns for, for quarantine protocols. The, but the thing that people have missed is that you have the same concerns as it relates to holiness. Because just as defilement can spread, lots and lots of people, if they come into contact with one another, will move from being pure to being impure. Holiness is also contagious. Holiness is also transmittable. And so things that are holy can touch other things and make them holy, which sounds good, but it's dangerous because if holy things come in contact with unclean things, very bad things happen. That's the Alka-Seltzer in the soda bottle. And so there is actually significant concern in the protocols and in the texts and the stories highlighting the need to contain holiness. And because of that, what I now see is, is very basic, has, has also been missed, which is that the whole point of the tabernacle is to contain God. So remember, we said the tabernacle is essentially a set of nesting boxes. So you have an ark with a lid, and then you have a smoke screen that's in front of the ark, and you have a curtain that's in front of the smoke screen, and then you have <clears throat> that whole curtain-enclosed room is inside another curtain-enclosed room, inside of a tent with walls and a, and a roof on the tent, which is inside of a courtyard area with a, a fence around that, right? <laughs> and the, the uh, altar itself forms this sort of like doorway barrier. I think what's been missed is that the whole point of this thing is to actually keep God from the, the people. Mm. It is to limit proximity or limit. Um, so let's go back to the nuclear, uh, the nuclear metaphor. It's to limit radiation. 
And so, for, for instance, you have multiple stories before the tabernacle where, where God approaches an individual or the people as a whole on Sinai, right? Sinai was the holy mountain. And you have these moments where, for instance, Moses can go all the way up and be with God directly. You have some other people who can go part way up the mountain, but most of the people, and it's even said the animals, have to stay away at the bottom of the mountain. And if they touch foot on the mountain, they will die because it's holy space and, and those people, those animals are, are common. So you have these, these scenes where simultaneously it's celebrating, look, God and Israel are really close together, like really, really close. And yay, there's, there's a celebration here. And B, this is, the, this is a terrifying moment because even just coming too close up to the mountain means people are going to die. And it's at that moment, we've, we've touched on this briefly, uh, it's at the moment where essentially God has just offered all of Israel to be a nation of priests who's able to be holy and come close to God. Yeah. And God will be with the whole nation and th- make that nation this ambassador priestly nation to all the, the rest of the world. That's when they make the golden calf? Y- yes, sort of. Uh, but first, there's this moment where God invites them to come up on the mountain. So first Moses goes up, and then the 70 elders go up, and then the rest of the people are invited. This is the moment they're they're invited to go up the mountain and it's precisely at this moment it's the one of the only other places where blood is applied to human beings there's a strange scene where it's said that Moses remember we talked about this Moses douses the entire nation of Israel with blood and we're like okay so, how could that have happened right right why do they get blood then they get blood the whole nation is covered with blood cuz that's the one moment the whole nation is going to come close to god they needed to be insulated in order to do that. No one was going to die. No one, God wasn't about to kill somebody. Didn't need to, there needed to be no substitution. Okay. This was a matter of insulating the people because this was the moment they were about to come close. Hmm. And it's at that moment, and it, Exodus is confusing because you get multiple scenes that seem to be replaying each other. It's at the moment the people are invited up that they actually d- decide no they're not going to go up the mountain and they tell Moses to go up in their place and they decide they want priests. Okay, let me let me try this. So they're about to walk. I'm about to go on a tour of this nuclear reactor with a bunch of my friends and we got the suits on and we're in that first room and the person's giving us the instructions and I just chicken out. I mean, maybe like jumping out of an airplane is even, is even a, better, a better analogy, right? But I, I chicken out and I'm like, I... I'm not going to do this. What if we just have like two of the people from this group go in, take pictures, tell us about it, and then kind of come back and like tell us how it was and what's up and all that kind of stuff. And maybe we can always just have it that way where two people are going to go in. We'll set them. The, The ones that are the bravest amongst us can be those two. And that'll be like their job. And we'll all stay back. That way we mitigate the, the danger by only having a couple people go in. Exactly. And I, I think mitigate is a great word. And, and so what's happening there is, again, this is the complexity, the brilliance of these texts. You read it two ways at once. You, and actually, I think you have to, to get the full meaning. One is that this is a lamentable decision. They turned down, 
this glorious invitation to be an entire nation of of holy people. So the, an entire nation that, like Moses, could go stand in God's presence. That was essentially the invitation. And they rejected it. And much of the rest of the story will lament that decision. And actually, you get a lot of stories of individuals. So Korah's rebellion, that whole scene, is lamenting the fact that they now, because of their own decision, have a system in which only a few individuals come close to God. Right. They're lamenting. There are actually multiple stories. There's this whole theme. Uh, you know, the, remember there's this theme of grumbling that happens? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we won't get into all the details, but that in numbers, there are these repeating scenes of grumbling, which essentially means kind of a complaining. But the, the way these scenes work together, these stories work all in, in conjunction, is it is lamenting the hierarchy that was established when Israel chose to be a system in which a priestly representatives and a system of hierarchical priests acted on behalf of the nation instead of the whole nation equally being priests. And at the same time, those grumbling texts serve to establish that hierarchy and say, no, 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 Aaron is the guy. I've chosen him. No, Moses is the guy. Don't, <laughs> don't question that. And so similarly, this, uh, this story back in the stories back in Exodus are saying, dang it, Israel just turned down the greatest opportunity. And haven't we just read in multiple places and we'll continue to read that the, the main thing you need to know is you're supposed to be afraid, right? right? Like, how could we blame them? So they did also the logical thing. And so on the other hand, we're saying this is a completely understandable reaction. This was the normal expected reaction. Sure. And yeah. so, get, so get this, it's precisely at that moment, what does Moses receive when he goes up alone to be with God? The Ten Commandments. And the plans for the tabernacle. Right. So Moses comes down. After what just happened is Israel turned down its opportunity to be with, with God equally because they were scared. And God's like, here's some plans for how to set this up now. Right. And essentially, the first parts of the plans are build God a structure so that God will be safely contained. It's actually the point of the tabernacle is to quarantine God. Like, I, I know that sounds really strange, but it's this, it's this paradox where in order to be close— mm. In order for God to be in in the midst of Israel, in the center of the camp, right in their midst, God has to be contained in this six-layered box. I keep trying to think of a better picture. I'm like, okay, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like it, but I keep coming back to the nuclear reactor. I mean, it really is, I think, a pretty, I mean, it probably breaks down in different places, but like, that's a pretty good picture of what we're talking about here. It's nothing bad. It's just, you know, even the, even the term quarantine, like... It's just that sort of radiation, like and protecting from that, and and insulation, and all these things. Like I, I try to think of a better one, but I mean that feels like that feels like the best. Right. Okay, can I do can I do my question about a New Testament verse and a passage? And this passage is one that I think used to like charge me up and used to like get me like excited to go out and do ministry. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like I don't want to call it like a life verse, but it was a pretty big one. And uh, yeah. I'm going to Hebrews. Okay. That's a okay. big one. Hebrews 13. You know where I'm going. Well, the whole book of Hebrews is... Right. Sure, sure. But uh, but Hebrews 13 specifically, I mean, it talks about 
pretty much exactly what we're talking about here. And I'll start a little bit before the specific verse that um, that I'm that I'm talking about here, which is thirteen uh, thirteen. But let me start in. I'll start in nine. All right, so Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then, here's the verse, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I didn't read most of that when I would when I would kind of be charged up by this verse. It was really just, I think, 12, 13, 14. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. Let us then go to him. We do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. So this was kind of like the, you know, Jesus was rejected by everyone and tossed out with the trash. So I'm going to go out where the trash is. I'm going to go out to the lowest and the least and the the hurting, and I'm going to go there, which I think some of this is, that's a the good way to, to live, regardless of how you're arriving at that. Um, and it's still a way I, I try to live, and it's to an extent why I, I care about the show. This verse isn't why I care about the show, but this this idea of like I want to go to the lowest and the least and the people that are actually hurting and being, you know, trampled on by I think like a religious and theological system, um, an oppressive way of controlling the way people think. Like I want to go to the people that have been hurt by that and and focus on them, which is why we do this show for a lot of you who are trying to figure out what you think now. Many of you have been pushed out of churches and uh and religious groups um and had had bad experiences with that and so that's we're here for you <laughs> that's that's what i wanted to say and i and i care very deeply about that not because of this verse but i'm just saying this verse used to kind of fire me up to go into the the um low income housing and wh- wherever i went like this is this was the verse um but it seems like this is pretty tied up with a lot of kind of sacrificial blood um, type of language. I mean, it talks about the ceremonial foods, um, the altar, the tabernacle, and it, and it ties it pretty directly into Jesus. And so we started this episode, and I think we should close this episode, talking about how this connection to, to Jesus isn't as simple as just, you know, they used to use lambs. Now we have the final sacrifice in Jesus, and it's all about appeasing this God. So what's a better way to think about this, what is this, what is Hebrews 13 getting at here? And maybe we can kind of land this episode and wrap this up by talking about sort of a little bit, maybe even hinting at how this all relates to Jesus. Yeah, perfect. I'm glad you brought up uh, this, a perfect verse. You could have, we could have looked at uh, any chapter of Hebrews. So the letter to the Hebrews is more overtly, expressly explicating Jesus in terms of the Levitical system than any other text in the New Testament. Every text does this. Hebrews is spending the entirety of the letter doing essentially nothing but that, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll look at that everywhere. And it's not coincidental then that one of the primary themes of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is the idea of confidence and holiness. 
Confidence is the opposite of fear. And holiness is the opposite of what used to be true of every single thing in the world except for a few rare things and people like Moses, which was commonality, profanity, just the normal state of the world. What we're going to see is that holiness, what we just, in verse 12, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to what? To make people holy through his own blood, not to die on their behalf, not to pay the price for the sins, to make them holy. And it was Jesus's blood that made them holy, according to the letter of Hebrews and other texts. What we're going to see, Nate, one of your, your primary questions for the last few years, what is the gospel? Everyone talks a big game about the gospel. Everybody wants to defend the gospel. Everybody wants to set up coalitions about the gospel. Everybody wants to say they're gospel-centered. Well, what the hell's the gospel? <laughs> I, th- I think there's a case to be made. There, there are multiple ways you can answer that question. Multiple ways in the New Testament answer that question. One of them, and one of the central ones, is that holiness is the gospel. And more specifically, universal atonement the universal sanctification and cleansing of the world is the good news. That is what Jesus accomplished. And it's that lesson that Peter and Paul have to learn. The whole story in Acts of of God telling Peter, don't any longer call unclean what I have made clean, what I have made holy. Is the point is Peter has to learn that what Jesus did in his death with his blood was a universal version of what Peter witnessed Jesus doing through his life. So this is, again, this is going to circle back to where we, where we landed last time and fill it out a little more. The Gospels present, I know this is new, I think it's, it's true and helpful. One way of reading the Gospels is that they are presenting Jesus as a, as a chemistry experiment. Jesus's body is a substance. And when, when we read the gospels, we witness Jesus's body coming into contact with other substances and we watch surprising chemical reactions occur. So this is more like Bill Nye. Bill, yes. Dumping the Mentos into the Coke and shaking it up and something cool happens. Yes. In almost every occurrence of healing, that Jesus performs in the entire New Testament, which is dozens, there are only a handful of times where we are not told expressly to notice that Jesus did them with physical contact. Hmm. Jesus touched somebody, or somebody touched Jesus, or somebody touched Jesus's clothes, and that is when a chemical reaction occurs that heals people, okay, and cleanses them. And essentially what we're seeing is Jesus's body is the same kind of substance that was used by the priests in the Levitical system to cleanse lepers and heal them and bring them back inside the camp. Okay? So remember, under the system, not only were you sick and suffering from a disease, which was a concern. That wasn't like that was a, a minor concern, right? Someone was sick and suffering from a skin disease. Then they also had to be exiled from their entire community and abandoned to isolation as a desperate form of quarantine. Right. Right. And so what, what ha- and they were kept from approaching God. 
So you basically, if you want to think of this in categories, there was like a, a medical crisis, there was a social crisis, and there was a religious crisis. And one and the same thing accomplished a solution to all of those problems. When, when the person with skin disease was healed, they were also restored to their family and friends and community, and they were restored to God. It was the same thing that needed to happen, and it was the fact that defiled things cannot come close to God and God was with Israel, that meant that when you got diseased, you didn't just suffer physically, you suffered in all of these other ways, okay? And so when Jesus' body touches lepers, just like when the priest would go outside the camp and touch lepers with this combination of blood and water and this elixir, essentially, this potion, they would touch the leper with that. The leper would be restored in all of these ways. Jesus does the same thing, touches the, the lepers, touches sick people, touches bleeding women, and they are healed and cleansed, restored to their community and restored to access with God. So multiple times, this, the first thing that happens is the lepers are cleansed and they go to the temple. The lepers are cleansed and they return to the city of Jerusalem because literally they would have been a main, they would have been required to stay outside of the city, just as they would have been required to live outside the camp while they're camping in the wilderness. They would have been required to live outside the city. So here's, here's what's happening. The same thing I said last time. What Jesus was able to do by touching people, Jesus knew, the authors of the, the New Testament knew, and he just, if we sat and thought through the logic of this, we would deduce ourselves, was amazing and wonderful and and holistic, and basically what, what Jesus could do for a person by touching them, essentially could, could rid them of all of their problems. Jesus could cast out demons. Jesus could heal them of diseases. Jesus could restore them to society, all those things. But Jesus had to touch them, and Jesus was never going to touch everybody, right? And the same logic of why blood in the Old Testament was because blood was not required Blood was especially valuable. Blood, animals didn't need to be killed. It was worth taking animal life in order to get the blood. The blood was valuable enough for what it could do for humanity that it was worth killing for, worth killing animals. And what we see in the Gospels is Jesus runs the same math and says, what I can do with my blood because Jesus is a special science experiment, he's a kind of holy substance that the world hadn't seen before. That's the claim of the Gospels. Is, is accomplish what he could accomplish through physical touch universally, and that was worth Jesus dying for. Not because those things couldn't happen without him dying, but those things couldn't happen at a universal scale without him dying. And again, this could be you know metaphorical, because... Because you and I haven't actually touched Jesus' blood. But it is, for instance, why the Gospels pay attention so much to Jesus' blood. It is one of the reasons why the Gospel of John points out this obscure fact that a, a soldier stabs Jesus in the side with a spear after he has died, and then we're told that a mixture of blood and water flows out of Jesus' body. Well, it just so happens that one of the only places we find attention to a mixture of blood and water 
is that that is precisely one of the the elixirs that the priests in the Levitical system were to make. They were to mix animal blood and water and use that mixture to cleanse people, mm. to heal them and cleanse them. So there's like this river flowing out of Jesus to the world is kind of this picture of this blood and water elixir. Yes. And it's exactly the picture is that Jesus has been elevated, hung up above the world above the earth, the ground, the dirt. Okay. And Jesus's blood is spilled on the dirt, the ground. And the idea is that what happened is the entire world was cleansed and even made holy. So remember, why did God need to be contained? Why couldn't Aaron, go to his son's funeral. Why did the priests have to eat the holy food inside of the tabernacle? It was because God couldn't just go out into the world. Not because God didn't love the world, right? God gave Israel the tabernacle for God so loved the world, okay? But the point was there were scientific obstacles getting in the way of just people and God being together right? Reunification, the great reunion wasn't that simple, right? That's why blood. That's why a tabernacle. That's why sacrifice. That's why priests. That's why baths and baptisms and priestly clothes and oil, all of those things had to to happen. So, So the whole idea of God being with the world was only truly possible if the whole world could be made clean and holy. And that is precisely the thing that the book of Acts essentially reveals that first Peter and then Paul have to struggle to learn the lesson that what actually happened at the point where, where Jesus died, where, Je- where Peter's best friend and hero in the world died, that what actually accomplished was, was the whole world was made clean and holy. That is the thing that then propels Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles out to spread the good news. That was the good news. Yeah. I mean, I have lots of questions. That sounds really cool, I guess. So the first one is then like, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Like that seems to be, we're not going to get into these today, but um, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? That seems to be a pretty key thing for to be a Christian. You have to believe in the resurrection. And the other one is I, I've come to kind of describe more of Jesus being killed versus Jesus dying. That's sort of how I have interpreted things uh, over the last few years as I've kind of been on this faith transition, more so that the systems, and even us earlier, early in the show, we talk about the systems of the world kind of doing their worst to Jesus. Um, you look at some of the Rene Girard stuff of like the scapegoat and like putting that all on on Jesus and and and, and kind of as like a indictment against the systems that we create, the, the power structures, the hierarchy that we create and how those systems are able to kill someone like Jesus. Like, I guess that's that's sort of how I've come to understand this this event of the, the death of Jesus, it's more like a killing, a state killing. Um, and maybe there's some of that going on as well. And uh, I want to get into all of that. And so this is sort of my tease for, I don't know where we're going in this, but I'm going to ask those questions in the next episode. So you got to come back and hear it regardless of of where we're going. I'm going to get those questions in um, and we'll talk about that. And if, 
If you're tracking with the series, if you've got questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can go on almostheretical.com and even leave us a recording of your question, and we'll try to address it in a future episode. And thank you again to everyone who has supported this show. You can give to help support the show as well, and you also get access to our second podcast if you give $10 a month called Utterly Heretical, and you can get that all at patreon.com slash almostheretical. All right, friends, we will catch you next time. Peace. Peace.